0: You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging.
1: So we typically don't think about age itself as a disease or aging as a disease. But if we could target aging, if we could actually slow aging, that's the common core, right? We could slow all the related diseases. And that would be a huge impact worldwide if you think about healthcare costs just to deal with the aging world and how the number of people with neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's or um, dementia is increasing because we're living longer, but we're not living healthier.
0: That is Dr. Nicole Earhart. She is someone with many titles at Colorado State University. She is a board certified veterinary surgeon and a professor of surgical oncology in the College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. She holds the Ross M. Wilkins MD Limb Preservation Foundation University Chair in Musculoskeletal Oncology and Biology, which brings us to her research interest. Dr. Earhart is actively involved in limb preservation, regenerative medicine, and tissue engineering. Her lab conducts translational aging, bone, and muscle regeneration research to benefit both human and canine patients. I know her best as my supervisor. Dr. Earhart is also the director of the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU, where she and I work together. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Earhart about the hallmarks of aging, these defined mechanisms that happen at the cellular and molecular levels in our bodies that are considered to be drivers of aging. We discuss Dr. Earhart's area of research in regenerative medicine, how that ties into the hallmarks of aging, and later how that led to a career in aging research. I ask her if it's possible to reverse aging or even slow down the aging process. And we spend some time talking about a link between aging and cancer and how dogs might be the key to bringing research from the lab and into humans. The hallmarks of aging are a fascinating topic that much of aging research is organized around. I hope you all enjoy this episode and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker. And this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Thank you for being here.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank
0: you, Hannah. So I think a, a good place to get started is to just dive into this this story. The story of you at a kid's cancer camp.
1: Mm. Yeah. So when I was a young surgery resident, um, I was recruited to attend a kid's cancer camp as a counselor. And um, when I was there the first summer, I met a little girl who had recently had an amputation because she had bone cancer and she was about nine years old and had no hair. And I was just enamored with this little girl um, and her, you know, just indomitable spirit and just how she was enjoying herself. But the entire time I was also thinking about, you know, amputation and why it was necessary to amputate limbs. I knew in at least dogs, which was my background, um, veterinary surgery, we can do limb salvage surgery. And I knew in adults they could do limb salvage surgery where you know, they can save the limb by um, regenerating tissue or replacing lost tissue with um, bone or, or muscle from, for example, a tissue bank. Um, so I became really interested in options about why, why this was so hard to do, especially in children. And I found that even in adults, it's a highly complicated and very complex procedure that rarely is solved by one surgery. In fact, the average person that goes through limb salvage that has large tissue loss um, undergoes probably 30 or more surgeries to in their lifetime to just kind of maintain the, the limb. And so it started this uh, kind of concept in my head about you know how can we regenerate tissue in large muscle and bone defects? And I took the approach of regenerative medicine where we're looking at stem cells and other options to, to actually use the body's own healing capacity to kind of boost it so that we could actually grow our own tissue back And as I progressed in that line of research, it also became clear to me that this concept of how we exceed our ability to regenerate tissue when we get injured. Um, For example, unlike salamanders who, if they lose a limb, can actually regenerate an entire new limb. And the limb is a complex thing. It has bone, it has blood vessels, it has nerves, it has muscle. Humans are unable to do that. We have this limited regenerative capacity. And, it, and so, you know, if we could boost the body's capacity to actually heal tissue, um, for one, that would solve some major problems with limb salvage or people with large amounts of tissue loss. But also, uh, I became aware that this, this issue of exceeding our regenerative capacity occurs as we age. And so our stem cells, which are the healing cells of our body that are recruited when we have an injury, um, we exhaust them as we age. So we're less and less able to heal. And that is essentially what started the whole, the whole process of becoming interested in aging as kind of this, you know, loss of our ability to heal these insults to our body over time. Mm. Um, you know, I think of it like it'd be super cool if we were like a car, you know, where we could these, you know, you think about classic cars that get refurbished and somebody has lovingly, you know, replaced all the parts that are worn out or they, you know, repair them. If we could do something like that with our bodies, where we could, you know, kind of repair the small damage over time, perhaps we could change how we age and perhaps slow it and diminish the amount of age-related disease
0: that we have. So that's how I got into it. How you got into aging research. So so it sounds like aging, the way you're phrasing it, is just a, a breakdown of molecular issues. Is that a good way to think about it?
1: It is. Um, If you want to think about it another way, you could think of it as defining aging as the accumulation of small amounts of damage that occur over our lifetimes as a result of just normal life. So it's the UV damage from sun, it's breathing pollution, it's, you know, just the wear and tear in our joints. But as we get older and older, we're less and less able to repair that damage. Um, and those things begin to accumulate. And when they accumulate enough, we experience things like what we actually diagnose as diseases like osteoarthritis or dementia or, or other things that we associate with older age. Um, and it's essentially the accumulation of those things that create the aging phenotype, if you will.
0: Is everything about aging a molecular process? Can every every part of the aging process be traced back to something molecular? Well,
1: at least as far as we know, yes. And it turns out that, um, you know, nature is this very, very conservative force, right? So it uses the same, you know, patterns and procedures and mixes them up in different ways in different organisms. And what we've learned is that even in organisms as Simple as yeast, down to the molecular level, and and it, we see changes that are associated with aging, and we can actually modify some of those things to slow aging in yeast, and then we've done it in my in worms and flies, and finally we've done it in mice because this there's similar mechanisms that create um, that are involved, I guess, in aging. Um, and we actually call those mechanisms the hallmarks of aging, because we can see them on a cellular basis, whether it's a single cell organism like a yeast, or a more complex organism like a mouse, or even in a human, the process and mechanisms are exactly the same. They're a little bit different. Some, obviously, in a yeast, it's much more simple than it is in, in a human. But the fact that we have now narrowed down these kind of hallmarks of aging to specific things that we know we can modify in simple organisms makes us extre- extremely hopeful and very confident actually that we can actually do this in humans eventually.
0: Right. So it's it's a universal process shared with even the smallest of creatures. So so what are some of these hallmarks that we can see? They're they're defined. We know what they are.
1: Right. And so it's but this is the culmination of many years of research with people who have done this eloquent, you know, kind of mechanistic exploration. Um, but, the, but this is kind of distilled down into the simple kind of hallmarks of aging. Um, I shouldn't say simple because they're anything but simple, but we've sort of put them in categories. And the big ones are things like senescence, um, stem cell exhaustion, which we talked about a little bit already, um, things about how cells communicate, how our DNA becomes less and less stable, um, how we, um, our telomeres, which are sort of the caps on the end of our chromosomes, become shorter as we age, um, how the genes express themselves are changed, loss of uh, proteostasis, which is how our bodies kind of, um, uh, kind of deal with proteins and protein accumulation, and then nutrient sensing. So these are all what we call the hallmarks of aging which are conserved from yeast all the way to humans. And it gives us kind of the knobs, if you will, that we can turn to modify aging, at least in the simple organisms. But we believe very strongly that this is also some knobs that we can kind of adjust in humans on a cellular basis. So these are what we call the cellular hallmarks of aging. And they're essentially the drivers of aging. They drive how we age on a cellular basis. Mm -hmm.
0: And there are researchers that spend their entire careers focused on one very specific component of one hallmark correct That is right right. and so you've you've kind of situated yourself with the first two you mentioned cellular senescence and stem cell exhaustion. So can you talk just a little bit more about those two hallmarks in particular and maybe some of the work that you've done in them?
1: Yeah. So the the first one, cellular senescence. That is essentially um, it's interesting because it's actually a mechanism that has evolutionarily been developed to avoid cancer, um, and and so we'll touch on that in a little bit later how cancer and aging can be related. But um, so cellular senescence, what happens is when our cells um, develop some type of insult, whether that's a, you know genetic insult, um, you know we for example sunburn, um, which is why we peel because those cells die. What should happen is when we uh, experience that insult, the cell has signals inside of itself to tell itself to park outside of the cell cycle, which means that it will not reproduce itself. And when it does that, it also upregulates DNA repair mechanisms that are trying to fix the damage that's happened. And there's a little time clock that starts. And if after a period of time, the DNA damage is not able to be repaired, either that's because we are, um, it's too big for repair or something, there's too much damage. The cell should normally die for the benefit of the host, meaning it's trying to die so that it doesn't pass on this genetic mutation or genetic damage to its daughter cells, which is how cancer has started. There is another um, cell fate though that can happen, and that's called cellular senescence. And when cellular senescence happens, um, instead of actually committing suicide like it should, it kind of parks itself permanently outside the cell cycle. It doesn't reproduce, but it also doesn't die. And instead of um, dying, what will happen is a certain population of those cells will begin to upregulate really big inflammatory products. And um, this, this process um, is called the senescence-associated secretory phenotype, which just, just means that these cells are secreting a whole bunch of inflammatory stuff. So they're kind of like zombie cells that are bad for you. Um, because while they are not necessarily creating a cancer and reproducing, they're also also creating all kinds of things that in the beginning are things that kind of keep us from developing cancer, but in the end turn out to create this pro-inflammatory or highly inflammatory small environment that then harms cells beyond it. So that's why we get wrinkles, for example, because the the inflammation products that these cells will produce create problems with our... Um, collagen, um, it creates all kinds of different things. So if you think about, for example, wrinkles, you know, it's, it's the extracellular matrix or the collagen um, that's in our skin that becomes less and less resilient and elastic. And that's because it's experienced this very low grade inflammation, inflammation and um, as a result of these um, senescent cells. So one of the things that we're really interested in is how do you selectively find those senescent cells and actually eliminate them? And if we could do that, does that actually change how we age? And and what we've learned is that, yes, you can actually select these cells. You can give certain um, types of therapeutics that are things that actually are given for other reasons um, in the medical field. So they're already approved and have a very known safety profile, et cetera. Um, But on very low doses can actually find these cells and actually kill them, which is killing the zombie cells that are sort of creating this pro-aging environment. Um, And so we've done this in mice. And we're now interested in moving to you know higher organisms, such as you know companion dogs and people. So that's senescence. Right. Um, and then for stem cell exhaustion, we touched on this a little bit about how we have this uh, repair capacity in our bodies which um, are really kind of initiated by adult stem cells that exist in all of our tissues as adults. You know people hear about fetal stem cells, but these are these are from our adult tissues. They're not fetal. Um, They're a normal part of our healing mechanism. But as we age, um, we have fewer and fewer of them, as well as the ones that we do have don't function as well. And so um, our ability to repair small damage begins to diminish over time. And so we're really interested, not only we talked about how stem cells could help boost the body's ability to heal, for example, large defects, but we can also think about it as how can we boost our body's ability to heal the small insults that are actually the things that accumulate over time that create the aging, you know, create all the diseases of aging that we, we are familiar with. So um, we're interested in using stem cells, um, our own adult stem cells, and kind of rejuvenating them or giving them a boost. Um, in this case, to sort of give them a small boost over a long period of time so that we're not creating that, you know, kind of loss of healing capacity that occurs with aging.
0: Mm-hmm. You touched on it a little bit with the senescence piece, but you mentioned pro-inflammatory factors and and inflammation being the kind of the root of this. So when I was reading about all the different hallmarks, inflammation was coming up with every single one. It seems like inflammation is such a culprit when it comes to aging that it's happening at this very molecular basis, and we probably don't even realize it's happening over the course of our lifetime.
1: Yes, and you can think about it. In a lot of different ways, I mean, so people have called this process inflammaging. so instead of inflammation, inflammaging. That's because clever. it is, yeah, <laughs> it is kind of a root um, result of a lot of the different hallmarks of aging that ultimately kind of start this very low grade, but very long term inflammatory process that's, um, that is part of the root of, of aging more quickly. Um, So, for example, um, fat tissue is a highly inflammatory organ, like it can carry a ton of inflammation signals and cells, etc. Think about, you know, um, just fat in itself has a ton of free radical, um, you know, oxidative, um, you know, changes in it. So people that are obese, um, that have a ton of fat. Um, or more than what is healthy to have, because we all need fat, but we only need some fat, not we have excess fat, we're that organ and we we call fat an inflammatory organ, but fat itself can actually adipose tissue can actually create and kind of keep that inflammatory thing kind of rolling in a bigger way. And that's one of the reasons why obesity is related to some of the other things that we see in old age, like cancer, like type two diabetes, all kinds of things like that. So you can see that this is a very complicated and interconnected ball of wax that is really a little hard to untangle and that's one reason why we go to simple organisms to sort of untangle them because you know there's a lot more we can do there to sort of drill down into the mechanisms and then we see once something works on that level we see if it can work in a more complex system that you know is more interwoven in terms of the different hallmarks of aging and how one affects the other
0: mm. Is it fair to think of the hallmarks as like a domino effect? Like, like how do some of the hallmarks link to other ones?
1: Yeah. Well, I so domino kind of in, would suggest that it's linear. Like you start one, and then the next, and then the next. And this is not linear at all. Um, things are happening um, simultaneously, and and but they are interconnected. So, um, for example, cellular senescence is. Responsible um, and and the pro-inflammatory um, cells that are like the zombie cells are actually um, responsible for altered inter- intercellular communication. Another um communi- another hallmark of aging, but altered intercellular communication, which is where we. We're signaling pathways like the normal kind of orchestra that's playing kind of gets disrupted instead of having a beautiful music. Um, we start seeing, you know, notes that are sort of wrong and then more notes that are wrong. And then suddenly it becomes no longer music, it becomes just noise. That all happens um, on its own without cellular senescence starting it. But what can happen is you can see if you think about the hallmarks of aging as actually being themselves the orchestra that needs to be playing in tune and perfectly in synchronicity as we as we go through our lives. Um, What happens is that you know in one area like one person might have um, more issues. So for example the violin section if we think about senescence um, might be the problem child at first but then you know it affects everything else but the other areas are starting to become problematic even before the violins start. So I don't know if that's a good analogy but that's kind of what I think about it.
0: As no i I definitely think the body is complicated enough that an orchestra is a good good metaphor <laughs> right yes, yes, and so so i 'm curious the goal with all of this, the goal with studying the hallmarks of aging, I think is this question of is aging a modifiable process can we can we reverse aging and f- discover that fountain of youth that we hear about all the time in pop culture? What right. do you think
1: so Theoretically, and and there's proof that this is um, happening. It, yes, the answer is: Can we modify or reverse aging? Reversing aging, likely. Uh, slowing aging, yes, absolutely, we can do that. We already know it, right? Because if you look on a very kind of high level or high altitude perspective, we know that certain things lead to longer lifespans. Um, for example, lifelong habits of exercise or not smoking. Um, So those are modifiable things in our lifestyles that we can do that we know without any doubt across all species um, that change our aging pathway from being one where we develop these age-related diseases earlier versus then we slow that onset of age-related diseases. So we already know intuitively that we can modify aging. I think the question is can we modify it in our cells with actually deliberate ways to to you know tweak the knobs if you will and the answer is based on the yeast and the mice and the worms and all that stuff yes we are able to do that we can slow aging on a cellular basis um do we think we can reverse aging i think we can because again it if if reversing aging is thought of like we're refurbishing a car the car is still the same age but it's running perfectly, you know, te- you know, decades after its expected lifespan, um, then that would be, if you think of it like that as reversing aging, then the answer is yes, we can refurbish ourselves, if you will. Um, um, the problem, of course, is that while this is working beautifully in worms and mice, right now it hasn't successfully translated to people. Um, And we can talk a little bit more about what's the holdup. I mean, these are amazing discoveries, like who, like 10 years ago, this sounded like science fiction. We can slow aging or reverse aging, but the truth is we can, we know that we can. The problem is we're having a hard time getting it to people because getting into people, because a mouse is not a person, right? Uh, A mouse lives in an environment laboratory that's very controlled. A laboratory mice are pretty much identical twins of one another, so they have none of the, you know, um, variation and you know health um issues that are comorbidities or other other issues that we face as a human population they're nothing like people um but they are a, a complex mammal and they're not a worm and so being able to do this in a mouse is really exciting and now we need the next step we need a bridge to get us to humans because when we try to go from mouse to human we tend to fail and that's true of most of the time when we're we're not taking any interim steps to help us understand how this might work in a more complex organism that has than a mouse that has, you know, the same genetic variation and um, heterogeneity, if you will, um, shape, color, size, et cetera, as a as a human population. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, you know, I think the most kind of the take-home message is our goal here isn't just to extend life. I think extending life is a side effect of kind of what will happen. What we're really trying to do is delay the onset of these age- related diseases. So instead of like lifespan extension, which is kind of what people think when we talk about reversing aging, we're really thinking more on the line the line of health span. Um, so we want to improve our health span, which is the number of years that we spend feeling good, you know, living our best lives, you know, being a productive member of society. Nobody wants to live to one hundred and thirty years old and feel like they're one hundred and thirty years old. So the concept is to kind of die young as late as possible. That's basically what we're after is trying to keep the body in a state that is not an advanced age state for longer than we typically have um, in the past.
0: Right. We want to be those 80 year olds that are still running marathons and lifting mm-hmm. weights. Yes. Yes.
1: And, you know, it's really interesting you bring that up because if we look at the 80 year old population and, and older you know, you find that there's really divergence in that age group. So there's those 80 plus year olds that are out on the golf course five days a week, and then the extreme like athletes that you've just, you know, mentioned. And then there's this other population that are, you know, needing a lot of assistance or on 10 different medications. But what's interesting is there really isn't a lot of people in between. So by that age, by age 80, something has changed that, you know, where this pathway of healthy aging versus maybe more Or less successful aging, I guess, um, started to diverge those two populations at some point during their lifespans. But by the time they're 80, you know, we really see a difference. We really see this one population that's that's healthy and this other population that's much less healthy and not a lot of spectrum in between. Um, So what that tells us is that there's some place along our lifespans where if we could begin to intercede with some of these things that will slow that aging or slow that divergence, we might be able to change the pathway from the people that are less healthy, more and and you know kind of direct them more toward the more healthy pathway. Problem is so far we don't know exactly in this long human lifespan, when to intercede and when that's important. We have ideas and depending on what area of hallmark of aging you're studying, there, there are uh, different approaches. But there are actually some really interesting ideas out there and things that are showing to work in mice that I think will work in people. Um, so it's the 80 year old population, I think is really an interest, 80 plus is really an interesting example. Um, and then if you were to look at those person cells, so if you were to take cells from one person who is exactly the same age as the other, but one, that eight, one 80 year old that's out in the golf course, you know, living a healthy life at 80, and the other 80-year-old that's maybe has some dementia or is living in assisted living or something because they are actually suffering from those age-related diseases. And you take cells from each of those people, even though they're the same age, by like, chronologically, they've been on the planet the same amount of time. If you look at those cells, they look different. So the 80, healthy 80-year-old has younger cells than the less healthy 80-year-old. And if you look at all those hallmarks of aging, those drivers of aging, the person that's healthy has fewer of those than the person that's not healthy, so again, we're seeing that this this is evidence that cellular aging um, drivers of aging are really important, and that we potentially have a target that we can look at. These are targets that we can modify that may change how you know we age. They're just not something that has to happen to us no matter what.
0: Right, it's not destined to happen to us. Genetics well, are not well, destined. Yes, and you know, I think about
1: there's genetics and then there's epigenetics and if you and i think the best example of like genetics versus epigenetics is genetics is the deck of cards that you were given when you you're you know the sperm and the egg came together and mixed up their chromosomes and we got this deck and that's our genetics. The genetics are fixed in our body for our lifetime and the same you know DNA occurs in every one of our cells. But what is not fixed is something called the epigenetics. And The epigenetics are more like the hand that is played from the deck. We actually can change the hand. We can't change the deck. So some of us get really crummy decks. I mean, you know, kids that get childhood cancer or have, you know, ALS or whatever. Uh, you know, no matter how many hands were played, some of those cards were going to come up just because there were more of them to start with in the deck. But for many of us, the hand that we can play can be modified. It can be modified, we know, by lifestyle choices, but we believe that it also can be modified by therapeutics and drugs, and that's what we're looking for.
0: Mm-hmm. Are those ways to change the hand, how the hand is played? Mm-hmm. It also sounds to me like a great argument for why you should be active and thinking about health even at younger ages. So true. Because so like you were like you were saying depending on what hallmark you're studying, you know, there's different approaches as to what that age threshold is that you can target to change the hallmarks. So if if we're unsure, it just seems like a safe bet is to always be active and try to be mindful of what you're eating and how you're taking care of yourself.
1: Yeah, cuz those are things we know we can modify, right? Like we have choices there. Like we can't modify our genetic deck. Um, but we can modify certain things that we know on a very like broad population basis do impact our health as we grow old. Um, because we we can see that it's very clear to us. You know, think about the blue zones. I don't know if you've heard of those where people, there's a higher percentage of people that live beyond the age of a hundred, and there's areas of you know the world where this is a, a phenomenon, like there's just a large like Japan and Sicily and Italy, etc. cetera. Um, and you know, some of the really commonalities between those people are that they have a very active lifestyle. There's tons of walking. They have a Mediterranean diet. So you talked about activity and diet, you know, and certainly we can look at associations of those things. Um, So I agree with you. I think you need to be thinking about this no matter what age you are. And it's never too late. That's the other good news is you could be in your 70s and still be able to change your hand. You have less, you have less, Ability to do that just naturally with lifestyle changes, but you have it. still it is not a foregone conclusion. Like you can still do things that will change your aging pathway at age 70. What we want to find is could we take that 70 year old and then not only just think about lifestyle changes, which are important, but could we think about a vitamin, a medicine, a supplement, a you know, something we give them that would then. Kind of again, get rid of the senescent cells, to use one example, or really change the mitochondrial energetics, or whatever that we know are these hallmarks of of aging that we could then, you know, really slow that whole roll down. That's kind of what we're. That's the holy grail, if you will.
0: Yes, yes. So kind of to go back a little bit, what we were discussing just a minute ago. You are a veterinary surgical oncologist, and you study aging, and you're in the realm of cancer. So how did the two connect to each other? Wow,
1: yeah, yeah. This is one of those stories that um, people kind of shake their heads and go, "Wait, wait, wait, what?" <laughs> um, so my whole career, like again, starting with the little girl at cancer camp, you know, became as I as I progressed through my career and was interested in regenerative medicine and how stem cells and other ways in which we could regenerate tissue. Um, one, I've also because of this little girl, quite frankly. You know, was also interested is could you safely use those in a cancer patient? um those those things like stem cells or other things, growth factors to help boost the body's healing ability. Um, my concern and everyone's concern is that you know things that cause cancer that cause that um, create growth of cancer cells, if you give them um, in the setting of somebody who's already had cancer, um but you're trying to regenerate tissue, um could you actually promote the cancer progression? like, growth factors or stem cells, could you actually, in the setting of someone who's already had cancer, actually create a worse outcome for them because their cancer might come back? So for example, things that you use to heal bone also will stimulate bone cancer. So you you know you have to walk a very thin knife blade there. So I was interested in the setting of cancer and in regenerative medicine. And that's kind of where I've stayed in my lane until I really got interested in aging. And again, the link there being between senescence and stem cell exhaustion, kind of this idea that we have these limited regenerative capacities and what can we do to boost the body's capacity to heal and repair these small damages? But not only that, but or can we take away the things that are sort of creating an environment that um, makes it harder and harder for us to heal, which in, in this case would be senescence, at least in my, Interests, and so the cancer and aging thing kind of are very, very related. And as you look into, if you're, if you look into cancer biology, there's a whole hallmarks of cancer, you know, scenario where we know there's certain things that as we, um, as we develop cancer, are sort of the drivers of cancer. If you actually superimpose kind of the hallmarks of cancer over the hallmarks of aging, what you find out is there's seven common hallmarks between the two. And it makes sense if you think about it, because age, cancer is an age-related disease. I mean, yes, young people can get cancer, but by and large, most people that get cancer are, are in their advanced age, and our risk of getting cancer is actually greater the older we get. Um, and we can talk about that, but that makes total sense to me. So there's a whole bunch of like aging, like anti-aging, or slowing aging, or reversing aging um, approaches on a cellular level that... May also be anti-cancer. Um, if you think about the whole, um, you know, all the age-related diseases, cancer being one, but things like heart disease, neuro neurologic degeneration, like um, you know, Alzheimer's, um, type two diabetes, macular de- degeneration, stroke, cardiac disease. What's interesting to think about is that the one common element among all of them is aging. So we typically don't think about age itself as a disease or aging as a disease. But if we could target aging, if we could actually slow aging, that's the common core, right? We could slow all the related diseases. And that would be a huge impact worldwide. If you think about healthcare costs just to deal with the aging world and how the number of people with neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's or um, dementia, as increasing because we're living longer, but we're not living healthier. It seems to me like this is our trigger. This is the real tipping point. If we could change how we age, slow aging on a cellular level, we have the opportunity to influence all diseases, including cancer. Cancer happens to be the thing that I had a lot of interest in, but it's really taking the same approach, but widening your view and actually thinking of it on a bigger scale. Um, I don't think that we have really thought aging as a society is a disease. We don't love aging, like nobody wants to get old and frail, but age itself is actually a a wonderful advantage. You know, the wisdom and experience that and and your ability to contribute to society, the older you get increases. So what if we could slow down all the stuff that kind of makes us less likely to be, you know, healthy in our old age um, and we could impact, you know, worldwide um, numbers of cases of cancer, numbers of cases of stroke. I mean, all this is possible and the key element is aging is cellular aging and we really think this is sounds a little out of like it's from outer space or you know kind of futuristic but i'm telling you that's what's happening it's happening so you know as i mentioned the frustrating thing is that we have this great amount of discovery but we're far the discovery piece is far outpacing our ability to translate into human populations and have meaningful healthcare options or health you know, uh, therapeutic options for people that, you know, and and understanding when those things would be um, best deployed in across the lifespan of a person. Mm-hmm. So there's our missing link. We have we have a real big problem, and we call that the um, translational gap. We call it our inability to go from the laboratory and the laboratory mouse to people. But um, but I think we have some ex- interesting um, solutions there. Um, and um, yeah. Yeah, especially here at CSU. Right,
0: right. And that's perfectly leading to my next topic. So speaking of thinking about aging from a wider scope, a broader perspective, you're the director of the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State. And and we're a new, relatively new center. And that's what we're doing. We want to look at aging from this broad scope. So, so let's talk a little about the center and especially how we're trying to close this translational gap that you've referenced.
1: Right. Well, um, when we talk about taking a broad, um, a broad view of things, um, what comes to mind is the word convergence. Um, and and over and over again, um, I think as we we the scientific community has recognized. That what we've been very good at is drilling down deeply within a discipline—molecular biology, or you know, cellular, you know, whatever—even um, social sciences, whatever. We we drill very deeply down into our disciplines, into mechanistic, you know, discovery, and all that is is beautiful, eloquent research. But sometimes what we fail to do is look across disciplines. And I think as we think about the world's big challenges and aging is certainly one of the biggest challenges we're facing as a global community, because we're living longer, but not living as healthy. Uh, so doesn't increase our health span, you know, our lifespan is increased, but our health span is not, which means that now we're this burden of caring for this, you know, large number and growing number of older and older people is, is, is going to bankrupt even the wealthiest of countries. I mean, it's just, it's not sustainable. Um, so. To think about that as a global challenge, the best way to approach these huge challenges is to think about them as an interdisciplinary problem. So we need to think of the perspective rather than looking deeply into our own disciplines. We need to think about it across disciplines. We need the minds and the input and the perspective of people from multiple disciplines that are all focused on the challenge, in this case, aging. And what the Center for Healthy Aging is, is an interdisciplinary catalyst. So we're essentially gathering people from every discipline across CSU and nationally and internationally to to focus on aging from their own perspective and facilitating that that groupthink, if you will, because we believe that that's the answer to some of the biggest problems. What's also extraordinarily unique about CSU and sort of ties into the veterinary side of it is that we have this outstanding vet school here. And um, the vet school is, um, has a really well-developed clinical trials program where animals, um, our companion animals, like dogs and cats and horses, et cetera, um, you know, we can actually enroll them in different clinical trials. Now, dogs are really, really interesting to think about when it comes to aging research. Number one, if you're a dog lover and i think many of us are we all want our dogs to live healthy into their old age and everyone who's owned a dog or you know lost a dog has experienced that heartbreak of you know they live a lot shorter period of time than we do and they age much quicker so let's double click on age much quicker so dogs live in our environments, unlike laboratory mice, for example, or monkeys even that are in a laboratory. Um, they live in our environment and they, they're exposed to all the same things that we're exposed to. They eat our food, they drink our water, they're exposed to our secondhand smoke, they're exposed to our sedentary versus active lifestyles. And unlike laboratory mice, they also have all the variety, shape, size, color that we do as a human population. So. All of a sudden you start to think, okay, well, dogs age naturally. They live in our environments and all those age related diseases we talked about, arthritis, heart disease, stroke, even Alzheimer's disease happen naturally in dogs. We don't give them the cancer. For example, we don't give them cancer or Alzheimer's or, you know, um, arthritis. This is just part of their active daily lives, similar to people. So, What's also interesting about dogs is they have a very different lifespan based on body size. So small dogs live a lot longer than giant breed dogs. Everybody knows that Great Danes and Irish Wolfhounds have a lifespan of about eight years, um, whereas a toy poodle can live 16 years on average. So this divergence of lifespan is really interesting. And if you take a seven-year-old Great Dane and a seven-year-old toy poodle, And you look at the cells from each of those, so been on the planet exactly the same amount of time, the Great Dane has older cells. So what is this reminding us of? It's reminding us of that 80-year-old population where there's healthy agers, in this case kind of the analogy being the toy poodle, and less healthy agers, which is the Great Dane. So their lifespan is shorter because they accumulate those hallmarks of aging on a rapid basis. What's also interesting about dogs is, whereas we don't know when the lifespan of people, they began to diverge. So that 80 year old that we see that's really healthy versus the 80 year old that's not, somewhere along their lifespan from birth to age 80, they began to diverge. They, we don't know when that happened. And if we could intercede at that time of divergence, we could change, you know, again, that trajectory to be more toward the healthy aging trajectory. What's fascinating about companion dogs is, we know when that divergence happens. It happens when they become adults at about one year of age. So before that, if you look at their cells, they're aging at exactly the same rate. Once they become one year of age, the Great Dane suddenly accelerates their aging pathway. So they're going down and accumulates all those hallmarks of aging much more quickly. So now think about it. We've got this very powerful opportunity to help both dogs, but also translate what we know in mice to people because dogs represent a more you know, mimic, mimic human aging much more closely and they're exposed to all the stuff that's kind of the confounders, um, you know, lifestyle changes, obesity, et cetera. But they also, we also know when they begin to diverge and we can then take some of these therapeutics that work in mice and use them at, at known points in that divergence at you know one year of age when they begin to diverge at 3 years of age when they're already diverged you know at old age when we see the old great dane versus the poodle that's still maybe they're the same age chronologically but the old great dane is nearing the end of the light his life where the poodle is still in kind of the prime of life you know can we change that trajectory there's no way to do that in humans there's just no way because we don't know when that happens in humans we know when it happens in dogs and dogs are so much more like humans so because we have this world-class vet school here and a center for healthy aging that's led by a veterinarian who's really interested in this, all of a sudden we have this really interesting opportunity to make an impact. And I don't think there's many other places, in fact, I know of no other place that has, that's positioned the way that CSU is positioned right now and that the center is to create the pipeline of discovery that will cross that translational bridge. And that is all due to the fact that we're really interested in the dogs again, not so much, I mean, for the dog's sake, I mean, we want them to age healthy, but also using that as the two-way street to bring the stuff we know works in mice to make it work in people.
0: Mm-hmm. And so some of the work that we're, we're doing at the center, if you want to talk a little bit about this development we're trying to do with this paired human canine biobank, for example, what's, what's mm-hmm. the goal with that?
1: Yeah. So this is a really interesting um, project that we've taken on. Um, so, so one thing that we want to do is, is, um, is sample dogs and people that live in the same household and look for these biologic markers. We call them biomarkers of aging across a lifespan. So um, we are partnering with a group called the Colorado longitudinal study, who's very interested in um, looking at their, I think their goal is is a million Coloradoans over 10 years. And their their goal was to take people over 10 years and yearly you know, have them come in and submit you know, samples and specimens like blood and cheek swabs and stool samples and different things. What well, we're interested in, so we're, we are helping with that project um, and we are one of their se- testing sites, but we're very interested in also taking a subset of those people that are dog owners and doing exactly the same thing in the dogs over a five year period, because 10 years would be a long time. Um, for, you know, we're we're pretty sure we'd lose a bunch of dogs just to old age, of course, over 10 years. But um, And the idea there is to find out whether or not the biomarkers that we see associated with aging are actually, number one, reflected in the dog. But number two, if dogs are actual sentinels of human aging, since they're exposed to all the same environmental things that we are, can we actually predict that someone's going to go down a less healthy aging pathway by seeing how the dog, that living in that same household is actually aging on a cellular level. So that's the concept, uh, again, linking the whole co- concept of, you know, we are sort of this one medicine kind of approach where we share the planet with these creatures, they live in our homes, they sleep in our beds, they're part of our family. Um, can we can we learn something by that relationship that's really beneficial to human health? And the answer is I, I know that we can, we already are doing it. Um, We're specifically interested in aging and aging biomarkers, but I think there's a lot even more that we can learn um, about cancer predictions, um, environmental drivers of aging and their importance, geophysical areas of the state, for example, or, you know, socioeconomic even um, drivers of aging and health uh, relations. So I think there's a ton um, of opportunity there. And we're just, we're just hopefully going to be a source to help researchers like myself and others um, be able to do the work that they do from their perspective, again, with the goal that we're going to combine disciplines and try to find, you know, you know, what, you know, just to try to answer those, those large challenges and try to really move the needle in in human aging and in canine aging.
0: Yeah, it's, it's the way of science to move in an interdisciplinary fashion going forward, and, and the center is perfectly poised to be able to do that with aging research.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's been very, um, the, the very good foresight on the part of CSU to invest in the center um, as, as that catalyst because, again, um, without the interdisciplinary viewpoint, we miss the boat a lot of the time. I mean, we get really good information, but we need to not just get that great information by being very deep in our disciplines. We need to think across disciplines, and I think we'll see that more and more. Um, you know, in the science world, I think we've—it's—it's it's a shift, and I think we're sort of at the front wave of that shift.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we are rounding out, so I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everyone who comes on this podcast: from your perspective and what you research, what is your best advice for healthy aging for the listener? Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that's such a good question. So, okay, I'll take it from the perspective of we know aging is modifiable. So what can we do today to modify? And we know that like there are things that have been 100% proven to change how we age. One is lifelong habit of exercise, daily exercising. The other is caloric restriction. So, you know, not overeating. Um, And there's a lot of evidence in intermittent fasting or periods of, you know, non-feeding versus feeding in the day has been shown across um, species to actually prolong life, healthy life, um, diminishing stress. Uh, so mindfulness, um, you know, y- using time, getting good sleep. All those things are things we can do right now that can change things. And it doesn't matter how old you are, there's a benefit to it for our aging. It's a benefit for our health in general, our health in general. But yes, those are the things we can do today. But the other thing you can do today is number one, continue to be educated, um, I direct people to our website, which is a great resource to continue to hear the latest and greatest in healthy aging research. But that's one way. Keep keeping educated. Support research. Um, if you have the ability to do research, you know, and you're interested in aging, you know, reach out to us or others who can help connect you with the, with people. Um, support research financially if that's what, how you're able to contribute. Um you know and continuing to you know engage people um in seeing how important this is for not just our own individual health but the health of the planet and we're really facing what we call an aging crisis so um i think these are all areas where people anybody could be involved in this and anybody can change not only their own aging pathway but they can contribute to a gen- the general knowledge of you know how do we get you know these really promising discoveries to people, I don't think we're that far out, Hannah. I think we're going to be seeing these things become in our lifetimes for sure, but probably within the next ten years, and that's so exciting. So um, I just hope that people will continue to keep in touch, uh, listen to these podcasts, because I think there's going to be huge amounts of information. We're going to keep on the cutting edge um, and continue to engage, because we'd love to be the you know kind of leading resource for all things related to healthy aging research.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Nicole, for this conversation. This has been amazing. You are just an inspiration when it comes to this topic. You really are. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, it's been a pleasure, Hannah. Thanks so much and look forward to talking again sometime.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging And visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.